This is a parable, a story about a magic stone. It was on the rock-ribbed coastline of Maine that a group of youth had come one afternoon to party. They would soon be graduating from school, and this was one of their last flings together, and they had played throughout the afternoon. As dusk came, they built a bonfire ate their food about the bonfire, and then settling down in the evening, they began to tell stories. Someone shared a legend. He said that lying somewhere on that rocky coastline of Maine was a magic stone. And if someone were to find that stone, breathe upon it, it would become a flawless pearl and any object that that pearl touched would turn to pearl as well. It was a highly imaginative story, but it fell into the mind of Ralph in a very unique way. He came to believe that it was a true story. He dreamed that he might find that stone. And while all of his classmates were diligently preparing for lives of work, he would be able to experience everything that he ever wanted simply because he possessed the magic stone. And on the following weekend, he went back to the coastline and up and down the coastline he went, picking up stones, breathing on them and then tossing them aside, picking up another, breathing on it and tossing it aside, picking up another, breathing on it, tossing it aside, and on he walked until it was too dark to walk any longer. The next weekend, he was back again. He walked further up the coastline, picking up stones as he went, breathing upon them and then throwing them aside. Finally, graduation time came. He received his diploma along with his friends, and then they animatedly began to talk about the schools that they were going to attend and the vocations they were going to prepare for, but not Ralph. Ralph had caught a vision of a possibility, the possibility of the magic stone. And so when summer vacation came, he was back on the coastline again, every day walking up and down the coastline, picking up stones, breathing on them, and then tossing them aside. When the summer vacation was over, Ralph was still on the coastline. It dragged out into the winter months. He built a shelter there among the boulders where he could get an early start in the morning and where he would spend the late days, the late hours of the day before going to bed. After a while, he got a part-time job just to earn enough money to buy food and an occasional change of clothing. It dragged on into the years. Every day, Ralph was up bright and early, walking along the coastline, picking up another stone, breathing on it, and then throwing it aside. One evening came, and heavily Ralph had dragged himself back into his shelter, Felt heavily, fell heavily upon the ground and lay back. And then a glint of light caught his eye and he looked and there on his finger was his class ring and it was pure pearl. 
At one time, he had picked up the magic stone. He had breathed on it. It had turned to pearl, and he had tossed it aside, and on he went. A parable of each of us who tries to find a meaningful life to live, to conquer our aspirations, to arrive at our dreams. Jesus told the parable in a slightly different way, and he reversed it. He said there was a merchant once who had bought many pearls. He had a large inventory of beautiful stones that every day he admired. And then one day he came upon a pearl that was far beyond anything that he possessed. So large, so beautiful, so flawless, that even if he sold everything that he had, he could hardly purchase it. But the desire for that, that stone, that beautiful pearl was so great that unhesitatingly he went back and took everything that he had spent his life working for, went to the marketplace and sold it. And with the gold that came from it, bought that one pearl that was magnificent above all others. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like that pearl. It's hard to tell the difference between the stones and the pearls in this day in which we live. I have a beautiful two-carat diamond tie pin that you've seen me wear mounted in a beautiful gold mounting. Now it isn't a real diamond because you know I could never afford a two-carat diamond tie pin. But I found that a result of an atomic laboratory that had been able to take the component parts of a diamond and subject it to an intense heat and pressure so that there in the laboratory they had created a diamond that was equal in every way to the diamond that's mined except that it had not spent thousands of years under pressure and heat of the earth. It had been done just in moments in an atomic laboratory. They had examined the diamond and found that it was equal in brilliance and in color to a mined diamond. In every way, it was exactly like the diamond that comes out of the earth, except for one thing. There wasn't enough heat nor enough pressure to make it go to the hardness that a natural diamond has. And so this diamond lacked 20% of the hardness of a natural diamond, and therefore it hadn't quite gone all the way. It wasn't the real thing. The other week I was in Knoxville shopping for a present for Carlene for Valentine's Day, and I walked into a jewelry shop and the jeweler looked at my tap in and he said, what a magnificent diamond. And I had to confess it really wasn't. I felt guilty letting it pass off. But there's a lot of things in the world you can't tell the difference between the real thing and an imitation. You can't tell all the stones from the pearls. And that makes it hard. Now there are two manuals that we can live by that will illustrate and give us direction. 
One is God's manual, the Bible. It reveals, shows the way, makes provision for the real thing. Living by it, we will always have valid the things that we seek after and the things that we accomplish. But there's another manual that's far more popular than that, and that is the manual of illusion and fantasies. The idea that we can accomplish all these things and we can gain all these ends without going to the trouble of going through God. We can get it on our own. And that is a delusion that so many of us have fallen victim to in our day. We try to receive the blessings of the kingdom without going in, finding them on the outside. There's a lot of stones, but only one God. This has been a problem that God has reckoned with from the very beginning how he could show himself to those whom he created as one with us, one who was necessary for our well-being, one that was necessary in order for us to fulfill ourselves the way that he created us to be. Gerald Hurd wrote, Newton banished God from nature Darwin banished God from life, and Freud banished God from the soul. One great preacher reading these words, Ralph Sockman, said, and in addition, all three have banished Satan from the world. God and Satan have become illusionary for so many in our modern world, have no reality, no substance, and we can get along easily without them. There are many who won't even recognize God in existence at all. The purists of science that say that the world and everything that came into existence came in purely from a physical basis and that there was no intellect behind it, no personage behind it, it just came. And there are those who say that we are nothing more than the product of evolution, whereas we began as single cells, but with no direction in our lives other than natural development, we accidentally evolved into the persons that we are with a mind, with heart and feelings, but no touch of a mystery upon it, simply a, a physical evolutionary process. And there are those who say that Life is confined to these short years. And there's nothing more because there's nothing to go on to. But these are in the minority because Gallup did a poll and he showed that by far the greatest number of people in America believe in God, believe in a God, but perhaps their defense of God is even far worse than those who don't believe in God. That is, they affirm him, but don't take him seriously. They believe that he exists, but pay no attention to him. God is real. 
Everything depends upon our recognition of that. And in that recognition comes responsibility. Nothing is of value until we find that pearl. There are a lot of pebbles in the world, but there's only one intercessor. We have separated ourselves from God early at the time of our coming into being, and it has been a battle from that moment to the present of trying to mend the fences and putting things right. The Old Testament is a story of the progression of that attempt, which failed every time, failed at every quarter, until finally God said, you just can't do it yourself. I'll do it for you. And all you have to do is accept what I do. We have that intercessor, one who is an accessory between us and God. It was his own son. God sent his son to mend our fences. He is the one who makes right all wrongs, and it makes us possible to live up to God's expectations even when we can't. And yet we've come to the point of paying little attention to that possibility, of letting the one who can make things right not allow him to do so in our own personal lives. Gerald McBrien wrote in yesterday's paper, a theologian at Notre Dame University, he said, prior to the 60s, the Roman Catholic Church looked upon the world as a world that was lost and that there would be far fewer who were saved than would be lost, basing that upon the words of our Lord in which he talked about the two roads, the narrow way and the broad way, and the broad way leading to destruction and the narrow way leading to eternal life. And the actual words of our Lord when he said, and few will find their way. But he said, since the 60s, the church has taken the attitude that the world is a saved world, and only a few will stumble somewhere and disallow themselves from staying in that relationship with God. And so few will be lost, but most all will be saved. I like that. I wish that that could be at the core of all my preaching. Everything's right in the world and we are all right with God and nobody will be lost when he comes to the end of his life. I wish I could say that, but I couldn't say that and be true to the words of our Lord in which he said, all have fallen short and only we who ask can be reclaimed. And so it puts a serious responsibility of taking advantage of that intercessor who can make all things right. And until we find that pearl, little else matters. There's a lot of pebbles out here, but only one truth. Last night, I watched Finian's Rainbow. What a delightful musical. I wish I could have seen it on stage, but this was second best. Fred Astaire played the lead role magnificently talented as he is. 
Finian's Rainbow is the story of an Irishman who sets out with a pot of gold that he had stolen from a leprechaun. And he brought that pot of gold to America and buried it near Fort Knox. He had dreams of that gold multiplying itself, being in such proximity to so much other gold. And in the course of the musical, there was always this strain, how are things in Glockamora? Finally, one who was not in on things as the way they were asked the question, where is Glockamora? And the answer was, wherever you want it to be. There's a Glockamora in every one of our hearts. But it doesn't come to us through leprechauns and fantasies. The story ends with the Irishman walking out of Rainbow Valley, out toward the horizon, carrying only his cane and his bag. The pot of gold has disappeared, but the dream is still in his heart. He's on his way to find Glockamora. Well, there's a truth that can take place of all our fantasies. There's a Glockamora that we can have. But it doesn't come from deluding ourselves and making pretenses of things that really aren't. So much that we embrace in the world is nothing but pretense, an imitation, and will never provide that which we're really seeking. The truth is that God has an absolute relationship with his world. Everything that relates between God and us is absolute. It is we on this end who try to twist the absolute and make it directional for ourselves trying to water it down to our own liking, trying to twist it out of context so that we like it much better, not allowing us to meet God on his terms, but trying to force God to meet us on our terms. And that's why a recent study in elementary school showed that children were not getting ethical training. And when asked who would cheat, when asked who would participate in a number of other things that were wrong, found the, the larger number willing to do so because someone had failed to teach them the right way. You see, we've tried to take it out of public school education, but we haven't made a place for it in our homes. And fewer and fewer are going to the Sunday schools where it can be taught. How can you know unless you're taught? And how can you know that it's true unless it comes from God? There are absolutes that we must live by and we can't twist it to our own liking. We're just deluding ourselves. We don't fool God. There's a lot of pebbles out here, but only one cross. We're coming at the beginning of Lent that pilgrimage we take to the cross. And the cross must always be in our lives, must always be in our theology. It must always be our experience because the cross is the entryway between this world and God. The cross is the purveyor of grace that fills our lives with what otherwise could only come from our perfection, lacking the ability to be perfect, God gave us grace. And when we reject the means of grace, 
We've lost the whole ballgame. Now this. Jesus ends his story with these words. And the man took everything that he had, sold it, and bought the one thing that he wanted most of all. He got the great pearl, but it cost him everything that he had. A great saint was speaking, speaking to a group of students he was recognized as being one of the saintliest men who had ever lived. And when he had finished, one of the young men went up to him and stood in awe and said, I'd give the whole world if I could be like you. And the kindly old man looked into his face and he said, that's what it cost me. Amen. Amen.